Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, one topic and one topic only. The Auditor General's report on the provincial government's handling of the Greenbelt. It's Tuesday, August 15th, 2023, so let's get to it. JMM, normally we discuss three topics on this podcast and have a number of other features as well, but today we're going to tackle one topic and one topic only because, frankly... Uh, maybe next to the COVID-19 pandemic, it may be the most newsworthy issue this government has handled in its five years in power. Ontario's Auditor General, an independent agent who answers to the legislature, not the Premier's office, has investigated this government's handling of housing issues related to the Greenbelt, and the Auditor has come back with some rather devastating conclusions. Our review of the procedures used to amend the Greenbelt boundary in 2022 raises serious concerns about the exercise used, the way in which standard information gathering and decision-making protocols were sidelined or abandoned, and how changes to the Greenbelt boundaries were unnecessarily rushed through. More troubling still, the process was biased in favour of certain developers and landowners who had timely access to the Housing Minister's Chief of Staff. Owners of the 15 land sites removed from the Greenbelt could ultimately see more than a collective $8.3 billion increase to the value of their properties. That was Auditor General Bonnie Lissick speaking at Queen's Park last week, and we'll be hearing from her a lot this episode. We are going to take a very thorough look at this issue, and we're going to start with the premise that not everyone has followed every twist and turn in this story. So we're going to start at the beginning and take you right through to last week's dramatic developments. And when we say the beginning, we really mean the beginning. So let's go back, John Michael. What is the Greenbelt, and how was it created? The Greenbelt is a swath of land girdling the greater Toronto area. It's over 2 million acres of land. 8,000 square kilometers, or as uh, former Premier Dalton Ginty used to love saying, it's about the size of Prince Edward Island. Uh, It was put in place by the Liberal government of Dalton Ginty in their first mandate between 2003 and 2007, Uh, though it does have some bipartisan heritage. It includes areas of the province that were protected under previous Tory governments, including uh, the Oak Ridges Moraine and the Niagara Escarpment. And how did the McGinty government decide what land should go into the Greenbelt and what land should rest outside of the Greenbelt? Well, as I say, a lot of the lands were already protected when the Liberals won in 2003. Uh, but early in the 2000s, one of the priorities for the Liberals and, and the environmental community more broadly was slowing the rate of suburban sprawl into some of the province's richest farmlands. So uh, aside from consolidating those already protected areas that I was talking about, uh, the Liberals also included large areas of farmland around the GTA uh, that were supposed to be protected from development. Uh, however, they also drew the lines in the belief that there would be several decades worth of land to accommodate growth inside the Greenbelt before any any pressure hit that uh, protected area. Uh, That included lots of farmland that would still be available to be converted to homes, offices, factories, etc. Now, how controversial were those decisions about what to put in and what to leave out back in the day? (laughs) Uh, Very controversial and almost immediately. Uh, Very wealthy developers uh, north of Toronto who had uh, land that was uh, put into the Greenbelt against 
against their wishes, they were furious uh, farmers who had been banking on selling to those developers uh, as their uh, effectively their retirement plan suddenly found out that their land was worth a fraction of what they had been hoping for. Uh, some municipalities had been planning for growth specifically in areas the province now said were off limits. So despite some real controversies, and, and not all of which were just you know whining by self-interested developers, I, I think it's fair to say that the Greenbelt was one of the enduringly popular accomplishments of the Liberals under uh, Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne. And over the years, how often did the boundaries of the Greenbelt change? Uh, barely at all. In 2015, the Wynne government started a process of reviewing the Greenbelt boundaries and engaged in a, a very public, uh, open process of seeking comment from not just landowners, but environmental groups and others about what, if any, lands should be removed from the Greenbelt. Uh, that process concluded in 2017 with the addition of nearly 30,000 acres of land to the Greenbelt and the removal of 17 parcels of land, uh, which uh, altogether added up to about 370 acres. Uh, the Auditor General's report has a good chart on page 23, if anybody wants to look it up, uh, that uh, really, I think, visualizes the magnitude of changes that we are talking about uh, today, uh, which is uh, the progressive conservative government's removal of uh, 7,400 acres uh, from the Greenbelt. All right. That brings us now to the end of the Liberals' time in power and the beginning of the Progressive Conservatives' time in power. In the lead-up to Doug Ford's becoming Premier in 2018, the Greenbelt actually became a hot campaign issue. What happened? Uh, Doug Ford was caught on video uh, telling a group of Tory supporters uh, that he would allow new housing in the Greenbelt. Uh, said, we're going to open a big chunk of it up and we're going to start building. Uh, then, about 24 hours later, uh, he backtracked. The outcry was, was fast and furious, and uh, he and the uh, rest of the party, that he was still the very new leader of, uh, backed off very quickly. And even after he won the election, was the sense that he was going to leave the green belt alone as opposed to, well, I just made that promise while the cameras were, were rolling and I got caught and, you know, don't worry, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we'll be back in business before long. Uh, before the pandemic, there was a, a uh, bill that the Tories proposed that would have also allowed some construction in the green belt. It got very quickly identified as a threat to the green belt. And uh, it was one of those times where they introduced the bill at Christmas and it was supposed to come back in January. But before they'd even brought the legislature back, uh, Minister Steve Clark had to to put out a statement saying, when the legislature returns, we will absolutely not be uh, uh, using that part of the law. Uh, we will not be bringing that back. So uh, there have been near misses, uh, but the, the government, through most of its first term, did not approach the Greenbelt. So essentially, the Greenbelt seemed like it was settled politics. Well, yes, that and, I mean, during the 2022 election, uh, you will recall that the PC party didn't really have much of a, a platform to speak of. They just used the budget. Uh, the 2022 budget talks about the government's enduring commitment to preserve the Greenbelt. Uh, they ran on a relatively clear pledge that they were not going to touch the Greenbelt. Okay. Clearly, we have a housing crisis in Ontario with hundreds of thousands of new people coming here every year and the government, in its wisdom, deciding it wants to get the impediments to housing construction out of the way so it can dramatically increase supply to accommodate demand. Generally speaking, what has that meant in terms of this government's approach in its second term to the Greenbelt? Well, I want to back up just one moment and say, you know, long before Doug Ford was the PC leader, or for that matter, even in elected politics, uh, the Tory party was skeptical of the Green Belt and believed that in combination with other changes the Liberals made during their time in office, it was going to substantially slow down home building in the province and lead to higher prices. 
uh, I, I know I'm going to say before anyone writes us angry emails that as far as the green belt itself is concerned, it's it's very difficult to put together an evidence based story for the green belt being responsible for high housing costs. But the PC party's views, both before and after Doug Ford became leader, uh, have been pretty consistent that they see the green belt as a, a obstacle to new housing being constructed. Well, that may answer the next question, but let me try it anyway. The previous liberal government created the green belt and obviously treated it with some reverence. What has been this government's, well, what should we say, reverence quotient for the Green Belt? Uh, not nearly as much. Uh, Ford has called it a scam, uh, said it was, you know, uh, drawn up uh, on a dartboard with some highlighters. About the only point I would grant here is that, you know, we talked already about the Liberal government uh, making some modifications to the uh, Green Belt in 2017. They did, in fact, remove some lands. Uh, very, very small uh, relative change in the size of the Green Belt. But it was, I think, a concession by the Liberals at the time that, you know, it's very difficult to draw a map from Queen's Park that gets everything perfect. And the map drawn, you know, initially in 2005 did not perfectly reflect reality on the ground everywhere. All right. All that background now in place, that brings us to more recent times. And before we go any further, this is where I like to remind people that my brother is a home builder in the Hamilton, Niagara area. He is building on a piece of land on the Niagara Peninsula, which once was in the Greenbelt, but which the town of Grimsby successfully sought to have removed from the Greenbelt. So housing construction could happen there. So we put that out there in the interest of full disclosure. Now, having said all that, the most controversial land swaps have not been in Niagara region. They have been north of Toronto. And what has been the issue there? Developers who had given money to the PC party bought land in the Greenbelt. And then suddenly the government changed the boundaries and the land was then out of the Greenbelt and available for development. So huge questions uh, were raised almost instantly about whether those developers got a heads up from someone in government that the boundaries were going to change. Uh, what we do know now, thanks to uh, the Auditor General's report, is that, in fact, the developers did have access to uh, Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing Steve Clark's chief of staff and had been lobbying him to remove certain lands from the Greenbelt. Two prominent developers provided packages containing information about two of the Greenbelt land sites to the Housing Minister's Chief of Staff at a dinner function held by the Building Industry and Land Development Association in September 2022. After the event, the Chief of Staff indicated that one of those developers provided him with information requests to remove an additional three land sites from the Greenbelt. Once again, that's the Auditor General Bonnie Lissick. Now, why did she get involved in this issue to begin with? Because she was asked to. Uh, the leaders of the opposition parties in unison sent her a letter asking her to conduct a value for money audit of these changes to the Greenbelt. Now, that letter doesn't force her hand. She gets lots of requests from MPPs to uh, investigate the government, and she does sometimes ignore them. But uh, to remind our listeners, the Auditor General has two relevant jobs. Uh, one is following the money, so to speak, when taxpayer dollars are being spent. And the other job the Ford government gave Lissick's office early in their first term was that of the Environmental Commissioner of Ontario. So I think you can make an argument for either of those mandates being relevant here, either public money or environmental issues. And so Lissick looked into it. So the Auditor General investigated, and last week her nearly 100-page report was made public. And let's go through some of her key findings now, starting with this. By taking land owned by developers out of the Greenbelt and therefore allowing developers to build homes on that land, what are the financial implications? 
implications of that decision? Developers stand to make an estimated $8.28 billion on 7,400 acres of environmentally protected lands that were removed from the Greenbelt to make way for housing. The actual increase in value could actually be much higher than that, as the figures the Auditor General put in her report were based on 2016 assessments. Obviously, land values across the GTA have gone up since 2016. At the time when we were obtaining information from MPAC, uh, that information wasn't available, but it likely will be available as time passes. So it'll, it'll be a fair amount more. What did the auditor conclude as to whether that was a necessary policy change in order to meet the province's own very ambitious housing targets. Uh, She concluded that it was very much not. Uh, This is not surprising as uh, there hasn't been a single uh, major planner in any of the relevant municipalities or uh, in any of the sort of large regional uh, planning uh, uh, organizations that I know of uh, who have gone on record saying that these lands were necessary to expand housing supply. Okay, let's keep going. What did the auditor say about the process? by which the land swaps were decided. Uh, It was almost the exact opposite of those 2017 changes made under the Liberals, basically. Uh, Instead of a a public, transparent process that solicited feedback from the public, this all happened behind closed doors. Uh, Clark's chief of staff made the decisions. There was essentially no process to speak of. We thought there would be a financial process to look at, and we thought there would be an environmental process, and so we were ready to go and look at those processes. And then we recognized that there were no processes here. Did the Premier or his Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, know that this was going on? Uh, They insist they did not, and the Auditor General did not present any evidence to contradict them. And I found out the day it was going to Cabinet. Premier Ford and Minister Clark. Okay, now Clark's Chief of Staff's name is Ryan Amato. What's happening to him? Uh, No concrete answer from the premier or the minister as of now. Uh, At the time that we recorded this, he is still employed in the minister's office. This chief of staff is keeping his job. I I appreciate uh, the support that the premier has given to, uh, to me and my team. The Auditor General made 15 recommendations for improving the process going forward. Now, we don't need to go through all 15 here, but what is, John Michael, what's the gist of them all? Uh, better process is the headline of uh, most of the recommendations. Uh, Bonnie Lissick's office recommends things such as clarifying the responsibilities of chiefs of staff and deputy ministers in policy and operational decision-making, limiting the use of confidentiality agreements, which the chief of staff in this case made uh, the task force sign, uh, controls over receipts of third-party materials, like materials that the chief of staff received from developers, including at a, a, a dinner gala, I should say, record retention and ensuring staff aren't using personal email accounts to conduct their work. We wanted to emphasize in the report that government business should be on government emails, not on personal emails, and that um, because that is a risk as well, because personal emails become then subject to FOI. Uh, and consultation with the public and Indigenous leadership and other stakeholders. Uh, on these ones, I would simply say that it would probably suffice if the government would have just adhered to all of the existing laws that we know of. <laughs> Okay, that's the story. Now let's get to the government's reaction to all this. Last week, Premier Ford and Minister Steve Clark held what I think was a pretty extraordinary news conference. So let's go through some of that. In the main, how did the Premier defend his government's conduct on this file? 
Uh, Premier Ford has really tried to emphasize this as a failure of internal processes, says the government will do better if there's a next time. He uh, closed out the uh, press conference by saying, this is actually all a very good news story about getting more homes built. Uh, we, we can talk about that a bit more. But yes, really trying to emphasize the, the process side of this. Well, as we say, the Auditor General made 15 recommendations to improve the process going forward. How many of those recommendations did the government commit to implementing? Uh, 14 of the 15, so the vast majority of them, uh, the government will implement, including, I, I should say, asking the Integrity Commissioner to look into uh, Ryan Amato's conduct and see if there's a breach of the law there. I've committed to ensuring that the 14 recommendations will move forward and will move forward quickly. Uh, and if you listened to the press conference, uh, there was a, a lot of repetition about implementing all but that one recommendation. Okay, all but one. So what was the one they declined to agree to implement? Well, I mean, for many would say this is the, the key one. That would be recommendation 14 in the report, which is conducting a reevaluation of the 2022 decision to change the Greenbelt boundaries. The report states that since the Premier and Minister of Housing were unaware that the pre-selection of lands for removal was biased, uh, the Auditor General recommends just a reevaluation of the change to the boundaries. Basically, reassess whether or not to return the boundaries back to where they were, which uh, the, you know would put those lands back in the Greenbelt. Uh, so far, uh, the Premier has said they are not going to do that. So it seems there will be a new process for dealing with this issue going forward. But in terms of looking backwards, definitely no reconsideration of previous decisions. Is that right? You know, we've had two major press conferences now with the Premier, but I, I think it's fair to say that this uh, government has not really given any indication that they are at all interested in reopening or revisiting this decision. All right. Let's go through some of the factors as to why this was a highly unusual news conference for this government. First and foremost, whenever the premier makes a typical announcement, he takes questions for about a half an hour. And you know the routine. Uh, journalists are allowed to ask one question, one follow up, and that's it. How about this time? Uh, this time, uh, it, the press conference lasted for more than an hour, and rather than just uh, one microphone, there were two. Uh, the Premier and Minister Clark were at lecterns the entire time. And again, during regular news conferences, the tone of the questions from reporters, I would say, is you know mostly respectful. How about this time? Uh, a, a bit edgier, very uh, different tone. Uh, I was in the room for much of it, and I, I don't want to speak for all of my colleagues in the press gallery, but I, I think there was a certain amount of incredulity about the Premier's attempted defense here, and in particular, that as of yet, there's really no sign of consequences for anyone involved. More on that in a bit. Another thing that happened that I have never seen before, either with this government or any other government for that matter, is the minister... Cutting off the premier, I think about nine times when reporters asked questions directly to the premier. Uh, for example, a reporter would ask Premier Ford a question, and even as the premier began to answer, he might get one or two words out. Minister Clark interrupted him, cut him off, and then began to answer the question himself. So well, I think, so I think ahead, Chief Premier, if I can, I, yeah. again, it's a symptom of, of, of the speech. Now, in most cases, I'd say Minister Clark filibustered, pivoted and didn't respond directly to the questions at all. But that cutting off the premier, not once, not twice, but at least nine times, is something I have never seen any minister do to a first minister. I've never seen that before, ever. 
I don't think it's a, a dig at the premier to say that Clark has a better handle on the details of municipal policy than Ford does. I mean, that's actually sort of how it's supposed to work in a, a ministerial system. So in some of those instances, I, I did read it as Clark trying to, you know, rebut the premise of a reporter's question or, you know, something like that. It's in a way that maybe the premier wouldn't necessarily be able to or be as quick to do. Let's look at further reaction. It is highly unusual for former premiers to go public with their criticism of public issues. The thinking usually is, I had my time, I did the best I could, now someone else has the job, and I'm not going to make their job harder because I know how hard that job is. So, it was very noteworthy that Ford's predecessor, Kathleen Wynne, went on social media, uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, I guess we call it X now, and she said the following, The premier and the minister say they were unaware that the pre-selection of lands for removal from the Greenbelt was biased. If that is true, and it is hard to believe, but if it is true, it is a complete abdication of responsibility on both their parts. That's Ontario's 25th premier, Kathleen Wynne. Let's hear some reaction from other critics. Did he think it was coincidence that only the people that have connections to his government that have donated to his government, that that so few would happen to be the successful, uh, the winners in all of this. I mean, there may he had to know some of this. I can't believe he didn't. And again, if he wants to come out and say, you know what, um, I'm just wildly incompetent. Uh, great, go ahead. That was NDP leader Marit Stiles at a press conference the day the report dropped. And here is John Fraser, interim leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. The Premier must ask Mr. Clark to step aside. There is a principle of ministerial accountability, and there is no way on God's green earth that the Minister's Chief of Staff did anything without the Minister's express direction and full knowledge. I spent 15 years in government. There is absolutely no way that that happened. And the denial of knowing things by both the Premier and the minister is totally unbelievable. It's preposterous. Now, the investigations around all this are not necessarily over, right? What else is outstanding? Uh, Ontario's Integrity Commissioner, J. David Wake, it, like Bonnie Lissick, is also an independent officer of the legislature, uh, and now has two investigations that we know of, uh, one of Clark and now one of Clark's chief of staff to see whether either of them violated provincial ethics legislation. Uh, I've said this bit before, but it's worth repeating. The Integrity Commissioner doesn't have the same really broad mandate that the Auditor General does and will be answering a pretty narrow legal question. So it's certainly possible that the commissioner could find lots of damage facts in his investigation, and yet would nevertheless say that no laws were actually broken. Uh, a cynic might say that's because MPPs don't generally write laws for themselves that actually have a high chance of punishment uh, until and unless a scandal makes it impossible to avoid. Uh, but that is a topic for another time, perhaps. Any sense about when that integrity commissioner's report might come forward? Uh, well, given that uh, MPPs are going to be returning from their fall break late, I, th I think it might be safe to say that it, we should have the report before MPPs return to the legislature uh, in the fall. Gotcha. Now, this Auditor General's report is, well, it's a pretty devastating account of how this government made decisions. Let's ask the next obvious question, which is, are there any consequences to speak of? So far, no. Uh, Clark is still the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Amato is still his chief of staff. Uh, of course, Doug Ford is still premier. Now, 
the worst kept secret in Queen's Park these days is that a cabinet shuffle is likely in the fall. So it's possible that Clark might be demoted in cabinet and Amato might lose his job then. But Ford can't necessarily throw Clark out of cabinet altogether. At the moment, Clark is basically the only representation for all of Eastern Ontario at the cabinet table. And aside from that, he's been absolutely central to Ford's municipal policy from literally the beginning. He has only had one ministerial post in Ford's cabinet since 2018. That's municipal affairs and housing. And he'd be extremely difficult to replace on a file where the government can't really afford to have a newbie come in and take a few months to learn the ropes. I mean, it is a housing crisis and you don't really want to change the housing minister in the middle of one. Hmm. Now, just a couple of final notes here. I was driving back from Manitoulin Island during the Ford-Clark news conference, which we've talked about, and I listened to that news conference on my iPhone. And then after it was over, I flipped on the radio to News Talk 1010. And what was the first thing I heard on that radio station? A commercial for the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party with Premier Ford extolling the virtues of his home-building policies. Second, the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, Her term expires next month after 10 years on the job. And maybe just a final comment on her tenure is appropriate here. There were times that some observers thought that Bonnie Lissick was, as they say in politics, a bit out over her skis. Uh, For example, she did a report on how much the cancellation of the gas plants by the previous Liberal governments would cost. And many people would tell you that many of the assumptions in that report were overly dramatic and designed to make the government of the day look as bad as possible. The reality is we won't know for sure for probably 25 years how much those canceled gas plants will ultimately cost. But the Auditor General certainly snagged headlines by suggesting the worst case scenario. But, comma, having said that, in the main, Bonnie Lissick had a calm, not ostentatious approach to her reports which I would submit gave those reports added credibility, unlike some other officers of the legislature who have used overly hyperbolic language that takes away from their message. I can think of a former Ontario ombudsman who was guilty of that far too often. So if that's it for Bonnie Lissick as Auditor General, talk about going out with a bang, JMM. Well, your point about her being understated, I think, is really um, important because you know, if you watched her press conference last week, you could see, and this is not by any means, the first time you've watched this happen, where reporters are kind of trying to drag the the more excited, we're trying to get a clip or a soundbite out of her that is, in fact, more inflammatory or, or more overstated. And she's very reluctant to do it. You can see that she just doesn't want to do it. She doesn't take the bait. Um, and, uh, you know... Absolutely, everybody hates the Auditor General when she's writing about them. (laughs) And then they absolutely adore her and think she's the paragon of wisdom when she's writing about their political enemies. You know, like you, I could point to a handful of cases in her decade at Queen's Park where, you know, reasonable observers told me that Lissick didn't get it quite right. Uh, And, you know, there were even some cases where the government of the day uh, pushed back and said, you know, actually, in this case, she's got her her facts plain wrong. Now, you and I are journalists. Sometimes a factual error is, is part of the job and you own up to it and you move on, and we've had to do that on this podcast. So I don't think that a factual error is itself a black mark on a person's record. But to bring it back to this Greenbelt report, if the Premier or Minister Clark have a substantial factual rebuttal to make of any of Lissick's findings, they've been absolutely silent about it. Right. The facts, as she's laid them out, make <laughs> they make smoking wreckage of the government's claims about what it was doing in the Greenbelt. And maybe the most damning thing of all is that the government can't actually offer any kind of alternative explanation. All of this said, 
prediction is a mugs game. Prediction is hard, especially about the future, as Yogi Berra <laughs> like to say. Um, but you know, something like this happens, and my social media feeds light up, and everybody asks, "Will this matter in the next election?" I have no idea. It is so difficult to anticipate what will or will not dog a government. Um, if you're asking me right now, as we record this today, this feels like it's going to have a bit more legs than a usual scandal. And I say that, and I, I've said this before on the podcast, that this is not going to be one event, right? The the housing developments that are being proposed, it takes a long time to get a house built in, in Ontario, and there are zoning approvals, and there are going to be council meetings, and then when the first bulldozers show up in these fields, there are going to be people protesting them. This is going to be something that just the nature of the scandal, it is going to go on and on and on. Now, that's a different thing from whether this will still be hurting the government in 2026. Will Doug Ford still be leading the PC party in 2026? Uh, it wouldn't be unprecedented. Mike Harris left before running for a third term. Who can say? Politics is, is always difficult to predict. I do think this is going to stick around for longer than the Tories would like. Yeah, I'm always amused by people who think they know what the implications of a story in 2023 will be in 2026. I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I think we need to be a, a lot more humble in our predictions which may very well be based on historical precedent and our following of events at Queen's Park. But the fact is, you can't know today what the implications of something in three years' time will be when it comes time for the next election. We will continue to watch it. We will analyze it. We will share our interested observations on it. But uh, the notion that anybody can tell you today what the implications of this politically or otherwise will be three years hence, sorry, nobody's crystal ball is that good. So we'll keep watching. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, August 15th, 2023, and our special look at the Auditor General's report on the Greenbelt. Please make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available, especially when we're doing them, you know, <clears throat> off schedule. <laughs> and if you already follow our show, uh, help a friend follow the show, too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shair Tajbidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And unless there is another major bombshell at Queen's Park, we'll see you again in September. God, Steve, don't jinx it. <laughs> <laughs>